Well, Logan, everyone, welcome to the Red and White Authority. I'm Art Regner. This is episode 50. Yes, yes, I, I guess it's a milestone, they tell me. So uh, uh, so let's just go with that. It's episode 50, and I can't think of a better person to have on than a, uh, uh, a colleague still, but a former colleague, a longtime Red Wing beat writer for 14 seasons. Uh, she has just written a book called Power Play, My Life Inside the Red Wings Locker Room. It's Cynthia Lambert, former beat reporter for the Detroit News and a uh, uh, longtime friend, and I'm glad that we were finally able to do this. So without further ado, let's uh, welcome uh, uh, Cindy into the program. Cindy, thanks for doing this. Oh, Art, it's so nice to be on the podcast with you. Thanks a lot. Yeah, well, it's it's my pleasure. Like, I mean, we've been trying to do this for a while, and I think, you know, uh, with Valentine's only a week away, Valentine's Day, this would probably be the perfect gift for uh, uh, some of the Red Wing fans uh, to uh, to give, whether it's a, you know, their, uh, their sweetheart, so to speak. Uh, I mean, it's a great read, and I, I really want to get into it is because Always when you have an author on or somebody that writes a book, it's, well, why write a book? How did it happen? But your story is kind of unique from the standpoint is is that you were just kind of telling stories to your friends and family and jotting things down, and you thought that perhaps maybe you'd write a few down and distribute them among your friends and family, but then, lo and behold, it turned into a book. That's exactly how it happened, Art. I... Um I never thought that I, I was actually on the beat long enough to say that I have a story to tell. But then, you know, as you just pointed out, the more people were asking me about it and the more people said, but that was a really unique time, um, not just because I was a woman, but because the wings were so bad. And then they ended up winning the two Stanley Cups. It was the Steve Eiserman era. It was the Russian Five era was the Scotty Bowman era, it was the Jacques Demers era, and Brian Murray. There was, there was just a whole lot in that little, you know, a little bit more than a decade, about 12 years, that really spanned quite an eternity for the Red Wings. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting time. I mean, I was around back then, and uh, the personalities that you mentioned, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, obviously... Um, with my job in covering the team, I got to see uh, all kinds of things, especially how members of the media were treated. And, you know, I always uh, had empathy, and I'm just not saying this because you're on, for female reporters because it's a difficult situation to walk into a room uh, where, you know, it's it's predominantly men, it's a men's culture, uh, you know, guys... Uh, you know, they kind of lose their inhibitions in the locker room. And uh, what was it like for you? What kind of adjustment was it for you to, uh, you know, to really uh, kind of assimilate yourself into a man's culture? Well, you know, it, it really was um, something that I had to adjust to. And um, you start right from the point of I wanted to be a sports reporter and I wanted to cover hockey. And the only way to do it, you had to go in the locker room. It wasn't like I was opting to do this and I could have done my job without doing that. After a game, you know how crazy it is. The players are all in there trying to get out, and um, you have to catch them. And if you had to wait outside the locker room, if I had to do that, I would have never been able to be an effective beat writer. So when I started at the news, I was 23 years old, 
And now, you know, with all these years, 20 years since I left, to look back on that, I realize, I mean, I have a son who's 16 now, and to think of him just six years or seven years older doing this kind of job, it, it, I really was young. I think that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I had to talk myself into doing a lot of things, like being calm when I'm waiting outside a locker room and, and knowing I have to go in there and not knowing what it's going to be like. And the first couple of times, the first handful of times was really a challenge. But um, like you said, it's, it's crazy in a locker room. It's not a private place. And I think that was the biggest surprise that I had. Right. Uh, you know, again, going back to my, my, my own I- impressions, I mean, usually, uh, and it's a little bit different now, it's a little more controlled where they actually bring players up to a, uh, I think because they have sponsors now behind their logos or something that, right. you know, they want, they want, you know, they want all, everybody, all, all the things to be done there. However, um, I still think it's a rule. You can go to a player's locker stall. I mean, just because the pre- you know the PR people bring them up to you, you can still approach players. But it's a it's it's a little bit different dynamic. But back then, uh, you know, we would all be kind of what we would call a scrum, or one guy would start talking to somebody. You'd think you're getting an exclusive, and the next thing you know, you're surrounded by all your media brethren, and uh, you're all talking to the same player at once. But um, who did you find were were the players accommodating to you? Did they, you know, certainly they respected you, um, probably more so because you were a woman than, you know, than, you know, a crumb bum like me or something. But, I mean, <laughs> were, were, were there certain, uh, were, were there certain players that, you know, really, res, you know, knew that you were in a unique situation? I'm not going to say it was difficult. It did, it's difficult covering a team in general, but uh, did some players actually, like, warm up to you or respect you? And, and just say, hey, you know, if you need something, I'm here for you. You know, I I always tried to keep the relationship professional. And yet, you know, when you get to know these guys, and I'm, I'm with them every day. You know, I mean, when you're a beat writer, you're covering that team every single day. You're seeing them experience the highs of their career, the lows of their career, the troublesome times, trade rumors. I mean, you really see the gamut, so it's hard to keep a real emotional distance. But um, I think I had, for the most part, a really good relationship with most of the players. Um, There were some, obviously, and you know this, you you get a little closer to, just because your personalities mesh a little bit better. And um, I talk about this in the book. Um, One of the wings, um, when my mother was very, very ill, he really, it was Keith Primo, and mm-hmm. he uh, was my mom's favorite player. And so he, he did some really kind things for my mom during the time when she was dying. And it was, it was just one of those things that I never would ask for, but he felt compelled to do that because he knew how she felt about him. And, you know, there were other players, Sergei Fedorov, he, I talk about something he did in the book, um, that was just very nice. And, you know, I talk about some of the players like Konstantinov, Vladimir Konstantinov, and Steve Eiserman, and Bob Covert, and Sean Burr, and, and some of the guys who I really felt like I connected more to than maybe some of the others. Well, I think you, you really bring up something that uh, that I've tried to explain to people. It's It's that... If you're with them every day like you are and you get to know them, you, you get to know them as people and you, you understand that, you know, the perception is they make a lot of money, 
you know, they play a game and then they go home and they spend their money. But there's an enormous amount of pressure on professional athletes, especially athletes that get hurt. It, I don't know if it's the Wally Pip syndrome or not, but to come back and not lose your spot. So it is a different dynamic. And when you get to know them as people, um, you actually, uh, and it's not that you favor them or anything, but you kind of understand exactly what they're going through. And I, for me, I think the toughest thing I've ever had to explain is, and, and, you know, Cindy, and I don't know if you've had to, too, but athletes are people, too, because they really do not, uh, th that concept just seems to get lost sometimes. Yeah, and, I mean, we're reporters reporting on people. We're not reporters evaluating code or binary operations or, you know. Right. It's, it's very emotional, also. The, the world of sports is runs on emotion. I mean, you, you look at the Super Bowl, you look at the you know the emotions of Tom Brady and and all the rest of the players. They're up, they're down, they're all over the place. So emotion does enter into it in any field, honestly. But especially when we are going in there and we are asking players, "All right, you really messed up there, Paul Coffey. You shot the puck into your own net. How does that feel?" You know, I mean. You have to have some kind of rapport with these men or women, if you're covering a, a sport with women, to get them to open up to you about this. And going at them hard and saying, you know, being very critical and, you know, harsh, that's not going to get you much. Was there was there certain, you know, players, and you you don't have to name them, and I, I but that you just knew because you were a woman would not would not open up to you or gave you minimal stuff or treated you differently and how do you handle something like that? You know, I, I never experienced um, a player not giving me information because I'm a woman. And I mean, maybe they didn't and they hit it, which is fine because I was in my own little world and, right. and I never really felt that or experienced it. In fact, I probably experienced the opposite where I, I think they might have been a little more polite or a little kinder or a little more understanding because I was a woman. And um, there's a story about this in the book as well about Brian Sutter trying to interview him after a St. Louis Blues loss when he was coaching the team and how he tried so desperately not to swear in front of me, which I had to laugh about. But um, he was really trying to be very respectful, and finally he just couldn't, and he said, I, I really apologize, but yeah, I have to do this. And then he just let loose. But um, no, I never felt like I wasn't given um, the same type of professional respect as any of the male reporters. When, uh, when, when you look back at it, is there... Uh, uh, well, you know, you left at a really unique time, and I don't want to give everything away at the book, but uh, you left after the Red Wings won their second cup, and I rem and I or second cup in a row in '98, or you know, moved on or or whatever. And I was surprised because you would think that you know, finally you're covering, even though they were good for a while, the Red Wings, you're covering a team that looked like they would be on a cusp to turn into a dynasty, and they and they had so many great players. Uh, was it just time for you to say, you know, I've, I've done it enough, I, I've got to do something else? That was kind of it. You know, I, when you're a beat writer, especially, and I have such respect for other beat writers, it's a real grind. You're on the road so much. You're, you're on the clock constantly. 
and it's a very, it can be a very stressful profession. I mean, it was extremely fun, and it was very rewarding, and I loved every minute of it. But it did get to the point where I noticed I just didn't have the fire that I used to have. And I had seen them go from the worst team in the league to the best, you know, two, two springs in a row. And I felt as though I was really ready to move on to something else. And I wanted to have a family, and I knew I wasn't the type of person who could be traveling all over and still try to have a family. That's just not how I was built. So um, I, I knew it was time, and I was just grateful that I was able to be there for those back-to-back Stanley Cups because it, it really was a, a mini-dynasty. So um, I just had to make my decision, and then I um, landed a job um, at CompuWare, actually. I, I called Keith Carmanis who had become a friend in the NHL and asked him if uh, there might be any openings there, and there was. And, and so I made the transition pretty easily, um, or quickly. It wasn't easy, I have to say. It was, it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. When you when when you look and you know you mentioned some of the players and uh, uh, I, I know I, I was all part of this too and you, you tell a, a a funny thing and I actually think it might be in in your introduction um, of the book where you know, Anna Kornikova started to show up at Red Wing practice yeah. <laughs> and and we all thought. We weren't sure who it was. We thought it was a relative or, you know, she was obviously striking. And But a lot of European players, because of, I, I guess, because they get more vacation time than Americans or something, there was always seemed to be a, a flux of, uh, of European relatives showing up at various times throughout the season. So we didn't think anything of it, but once we found out who it was, uh, you know, nobody wanted to become a gossip columnist or find out what was going on, but there was one point where you actually had to talk to both Anna and Sergey, and it, it, it's kind of funny what uh, what transpired. Uh, yeah, that was one of the, the crazier moments of my career. I was heading to the locker room after the game ended, and she was standing in the concourse, and um, down below, you know, not where all the, the fans were. Right. And she was down the hall from the locker room, and she called me over, and she was showing me this ring she was wearing, and basically she wanted me to write in the paper that she and Sergey were married. And so I had to go to Sergey and talk with him, and he denied it. And, yeah, I just wanted to get in and talk about the power play and, and go and do my job, but I, I got sucked into it. Yeah, that was uh, you know that was always kind of a weird dynamic. You know, you talk about a, a certain players and and different players. I think one of the more unique personalities, and that I kind of covered him towards the end. I didn't get to know him that well, but you know, from talking to several players afterwards, uh, who seemed like a real character was, was Jacques Demers. I mean, he really kind of elevated this. Um, the franchise a bit, you know. He was get get him into the playoffs, and he was, uh, yep. you know, he you know he he was the type of coach, I guess you could say. And even though I know he he won a cup with Montreal, he probably took the team as far as he could take him because his personality, after a while, didn't grate on the players, but. You know, they kind of tuned tuned the message out. I guess is the way. It, it, I don't know if that's a fair assessment. I I've always wanted to ask you know somebody that was really there for for all of it if that was true or not. No, I understand what you're saying, and I 
I think at the time, I think that Illich has made a very smart decision in bringing Jacques in, because at that point, the team was um, floundering, and there was no direction, and Jacques came in, and Jacques was the personality of that team then, and he wrote that out, and, and he, he really took them places, and he really laid the groundwork for what was to come in the future, especially making Steve Eisenman the team captain. And um, not that other coaches wouldn't have made that same decision, but he did it, and he was the one there, and he made that decision, and Steve was very young, and it was an exceptional decision. And Jacques got the, the, the fans back in those seats. I mean, he was so entertaining to watch and to listen to, and he had such passion for that team. And um, I think he was the perfect coach for the Wings at that point. But, yeah, I do think some of the messages started just getting maybe a little repetitious, and the players needed an influx. And you see that in any sport, any team, where the coach will run his um, career as long as he can there, and then they move on to somewhere else and take on a new challenge and you bring in a different coach with some different ideas and it wakes the players up and, and hopefully they have more success. Yeah, I, I one player, and I'm not going to name him, told me that you know, Jock would, would address the team and he would say something like, hey, we really got to get the power play going. We've got to get the power play. And he would start, and I know you can do it, but he would be like a motivational speaker. And, you know, and the, and the Red Wings would be all fired up and go, yeah, let's get this power play going. And then they'd look at him and say, all right, Jock, how do we do that? And yeah. unfortunately, poor <laughs> Jock really didn't have an answer for it. <laughs> yeah, but Jock did surround himself with some good people. And Jock, I mean, obviously understands the game or understood it when he was coaching. And, and, but I think his his wheelhouse was motivation. Right. I think that's what made him different than other coaches. He was a fabulous motivator, and you know, he was right up there with the top motivators. And and you can't discount that. You know, emotion wins a lot of games, and obviously he knew enough about the game to to be a tactician with it, but. Yeah, the game was elevated, and, and they needed just someone different. Well, uh, you know, uh, Sean Burr, who, you know, the late uh, Sean Burr, just a you know tremendous player and a, a really great person, he told me a story that we're going against Edmonton uh, in the playoffs, and Jacques addresses them and says, all right, boys, uh, you know, I need the men's tonight. I need the men's. No boys tonight. We need the men's against this team. The men's have to show up. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so then he looks at him, and they're about to take the ice, you know, the Red Wings, and he goes, remember, we need the men's. And then he stops, he gets real emotional, he goes, let's go, boys. <laughs> yeah, I have that story in the book. Oh, do you? Okay, well, Sean, Sean, I think, you know, in the What It Means to Be a Red Wing, he told me that too. But that's just such a classic story, which I think always epitomizes the emotions that run through these guys, as you just said. I mean, that's the one thing that, you know, I, I think that there's sometimes is a perception that because, you know, because they, they, they make a lot of money and they're playing games and they're in the public eye, but... If these guys didn't have a passion for their sport or really be emotionally involved, they wouldn't be at the National Hockey League level. No, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I'm partial to hockey, but I think they're the best athletes around. I mean, I, I just, I mean, maybe tennis, 
I mean, I look at these these tennis players and the grit and the reaction, especially in doubles. We were just talking about that the other night, a friend of mine. But with hockey, they start with a skill under their feet. And I'm just still amazed at the, the talent of these players. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. And I, I am, to this day, I am so grateful that I was allowed to do that job and that I had the privilege of covering that team because it, it really was the job of a lifetime in a span of time with that organization that, that truly was remarkable. And to see how players react to different things and, you know, how they react to adversity and success, and it really is an amazing thing to be a part of. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I look at it, uh, you know, during the span of your career um, uh, covering the Red Wings, you had Jock Demers and then you end up with Scotty Bowman. Um, in a, in a, a great motivator in his own right, but definitely not the effervescent personality that Jacques Demers was. <laughs> well, that's like a great understatement, Art. Not the effervescent personality. You know, Scotty was definitely unique, and um, not gonna, you know, not gonna lie, was not a real fan of, you know, getting along with Scotty. It was, it was a challenge every day. But um, I respect the type of coach he was. Um, as far as the success he was able to achieve. Um, do I agree with his tactics? No. But um, he did what he was paid to do, and he won the Stanley Cup, and the players benefited from that, even if the road to that was filled with turmoil and a lot of um, interesting moments for them. Yeah, my relationship with Scotty was always fairly good, and I think it was because I just loved those Montreal Canadian teams that he coached, and some of the best, yeah. so um, if I was, n I never tried to talk to Scotty too much about the Red Wings, but I always tried to talk to him about hockey cards, and in oh, yeah. Montreal, and you know, but I have to admit, he treated me very, very well. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I really do. I really do admire him. I, I and I, I've said this many times. I really think that he's, without question, the best coach in professional sports history, regardless of uh, of sport. Uh, he he's able to, to 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 motivate it. But I think the thing from our perspective was he treated each player. He didn't treat the team as a whole so much. He treated each player almost individually, and maybe that's what all coaches do. So sometimes you'd walk in the room, and some of these guys were on air because Scotty talked to them, and some of them were extremely upset because Scotty was ignoring them. I mean, it was a really interesting dynamic when he was coach. Yeah, it's almost as if you could combine the tactical and strategic nature of Scotty with the motivational techniques of Jacques, you would have the perfect coach. Right, that 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 would be. You know, I, I think as he got older, and the last few years, he, you know, I used to tell people, you know, maybe we got Scotty at the good time because you know, I I read you know the the game by Ken Dryden and all that, and you know, I could oh, imagine. Right. I could imagine Scotty as a younger man might might have been you know almost unbearable, but I think you know he he kind of mellowed out there towards the end, or maybe you know he just said you know it, you know my time's coming. But a very unique coach, very unique personality. But uh, when you look at it, you've got all these players in there, a, a, a different room. Uh, you know, one thing uh, 
you know, putting the Russian five together, uh, and 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 I know for the pictures in your book, you know, you have an autographed jersey of the uh, of the Russian five. Um, that was really a unique time because I didn't know it at the time, Cindy, and I don't know if you were aware. I didn't realize until you know they started to be such a dominant line that we were actually seeing. A, an overall change in the NHL, how the game was going to be played, primarily because of those five guys. Absolutely. And I, I think we all pretty much knew that was a really special time and to see that. And you had people like Kevin Allen, who um, covers hockey for USA Today, who had been following the Russians. And um, I remember Tom McMillan in Pittsburgh. He was a huge Russian hockey fan. And you had these people coming just to watch the Red Wings with the Russian Five because it was so unique. And not only was it just five Russians, you had some of the best ever to play hockey for Russia. So, I mean, it, it, I mean with Batisov and Larianov and Konstantinov and Fedorov and even Kozlov, I mean, these, these weren't just third-line Russian players. They were all top Russian players. And yeah, and you know the five-man unit and the way that they played, and uh, you know, and each of them unique in their own way. And and I think you, you you know you bring it up and stuff. Vladimir Konstantinov was really a very you know tough player. And I I know sometimes we use this word and it's over, uh, you know, it's, we use it too much. But sometimes, but he was really a warrior out on the ice. But off the ice, he was a pretty astute and pretty funny dude. <laughs> I love Vladdy. Yeah, he was uh, he was a tough read the first year or two because he kept to himself so much, and he really was kind of intimidating looking. But um, he's one of the the players who I really warmed up to, and who was so nice, just just a kind person. And um, that's why it was so great to see him win that cup in '97, and and to see him with such unbridled enthusiasm. It was. It was just so heartwarming, and which made it so heart wrenching. A few weeks later, when the accident happened. Yeah, that was uh, you know that it, it still seems surreal uh, to me. I mean, I can remember. Uh, yeah, I was out at a local establishment here on the west side of uh, Detroit, and you know somebody told me, "Hey, did you hear there was a limo accident?" And then I immediately had to leave. Uh, you know this setting. And I just couldn't believe it. You know, you're making phone calls, and I, you know, I guess cell phones were around back then, but they were, you know, the, you know, they weren't like what quite what they were today. So the information wasn't passed along. I mean, you still had to do a little bit of legwork, I guess, is what I'm saying, and actually make a phone call or two. And uh, it wasn't right. all over social internet, uh, the uh, the internet and stuff. Uh, uh, just a terrible time um, for for everybody. And, and and I guess that's you know we've talked about it. that's kind of the human element that. That, you know, when something like that happens, not that, you know, we're cold and heartless, but I mean, geez, it, it, it touched everybody who covered that team. It absolutely did. And I think that's one of those unique situations where, you know, when you're a reporter, you're supposed to be objective and you're supposed to cover them as, you know, subjects or, you know, whatever you want to refer to it as. But when something like that happens, all of that goes out the door because... You're, you're starting to think about their families and their, their kids and, and just what they just went through and the pain they're going through. And this is someone you've known for years and you've had very 
um, pointed conversations with, and it's just, it's really hard to describe it, but I, I think people understand the type of relationship that a reporter, especially a beat writer, can have with the people they cover, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book, was to give people an idea of what it is like to be a beat writer, and have them walk in my shoes for, you know, however long it takes you to read the book. Well, what? How would you? Do, what is it like to be a beat writer? How would you describe it? I mean, I know you know, not without giving away like stories in the book, but uh, the life of a beat writer is, I guess, it would be like covering, uh, you know, the police beat. Uh, there's something going on every single day, and it's it's usually pretty much pretty much new. Although it's it seems to be the same, you know, you're writing about it, but players change, incidents change, games change. I mean, in right. a way, it's a, a really a wonderful experience. Yeah, I mean, you're really covering history every day, whether it's exciting history or just routine history. And, and you're the person who's recording that official record of what's happening. And so it's very exciting in that sense, and it's, it's very important. Um, now, is it as important as a police beat? No. Um, it's entertainment. And hockey... Any sport is entertainment, but it's also big business, so you need to, you know, have a lot of care to be accurate. But um, it really is exciting, too. It really is, and it took me a couple of years to remember that I'm a reporter, not a fan. And um, when I started running into the players like Wayne Gretzky or Mario Lemieux or even Gordy Howe in, in the press room, I would get flustered. I really would get flustered because I had been watching them. And um, it just it just takes a little mental adjustment, but it, it also is a very tiring job because, as I said, it's a seven day a week job. And um, back then, I mean, we didn't have the internet, so once the the papers went to bed, I was free for the rest of the night, which usually was like one one thirty in the morning. But now it's a twenty four seven job. I don't know how they do it. Well, you know, because you even. You know, people can just make stuff up and post it, and you've got to you've got to run it down. You have to look. You know, you have to see if it's true or not. And most of the time, it just isn't. Or you know, it's it, you know, it's somebody making something up and saying, "Yeah, this would be a good trade for the Red Wings to make." And bam, before you know right. it, you know, it's out there, and you're like, "Oh man, I this I know this isn't true, but what if it was?" Know. You know. So I remember um, it was very early on in my career, and I was at the news. In, like in the newsroom, the sports room, and a call came in that Mike O'Connell and Sean Burr were at a bar and they were starting a fight or something. They started a fight. And I thought, yeah, Mike O'Connell and Sean Burr together? I don't think so. But um, <laughs> I asked the person, I said, well, how do you know it was them? And you know what they said? They were wearing their jerseys. <laughs> wow. Really? So Michael wow. Coughlin and Sean Burr are going to wear their hockey jerseys out to a bar. So that's how we knew that one was not real. Uh, yeah, it, it was really interesting. I, you know, I, I've told this story before, too, is that there was a, when 24 first became a television show, a lot of the Red Wings were in it. Or were into it. They weren't actually in the okay. show, but they were big Jack Bauer fans. So... Yeah, I said, guess who else became a big 24 fan? Me. Because 
Yeah, and every day after 24, the next day at practice or after a game or something, I would walk in, and all I'd want to talk about is 24 with those guys, and they would all be into it, you know, the five or six right. of them that were really. So we'd talk about 24, and then all of a sudden I'd slip in the thing like, you know, you haven't scored a goal in 20 games. What's up? And they were <laughs> Right, you know, and then they they tell me, well, yeah, you know, you're right about that, you know, and so I mean, you know, but and there's dynamics. Not that I was trying to be manipulative. Actually, I, I actually enjoyed 24 in the beginning of as well. You but were. you know, it's yeah, in a way, I guess I was. But you know, yeah. it, it, that that whole dynamic. Now, you you talked about a player that you know certainly, uh, you know, I, I got to know very very well. And that is Steve Eiserman. But you saw him from a young captain and then, you know, kind of morph into the captain of a Stanley Cup champion. Um, how would you describe Stevie? Uh, what was it like covering Steve? Oh, gosh. Steve was, uh, you know, honestly, you know there are people who they have a public persona and then they have a private persona? Right. Steve wasn't one of those. What you see, you know, in all the interviews with Steve, that's, at least it was my experience, mm -hmm. that's who he was. I mean, he was a very consistent, honest, um, respectful, brilliant person. And um, there was never any huge surprise talking with Steve. And um, he was he was just terrific to work with. He really was. He really was. And that's why I'm such a huge fan of Jacques, because he saw that in Steve and made him the captain at such a young age. Yeah, I, I, I can remember a couple of reporters when Stevie was a rookie, and I, I guess they were up in, the training camp was up in Port Huron, McMoran Arena or something uh, up yep. there, and... And he was, you know, he was drafted, and he, he was talking about after uh, uh, after a few practices up there uh, that he was hoping to, you know, maybe stick with the team for a little bit, and then he couldn't wait to get back to Peterborough and start to implement some of the things that he was being taught and uh, uh, up there. And I guess some of the reporters, and I don't know, Cindy, if you, if you were part of this group or not, or probably, you know, it probably was before you uh, you started covering it, but these these reporters had to tell him, fella, I don't know what you're watching, but you're the best player on the team. You're going nowhere, <laughs> you know. And and he just had a tough time accepting that. He he couldn't imagine being a Red Wing, you know, at 18 years old. Yeah, yeah. He said, yeah. Oh God. You know, so I, I always thought that that back, was isn't it? right. It is. It is. Uh, you know, a lot of characters on this team. You know, we talked about you know Sean Burr, who was. Uh, I always described him as the only player that I knew that after a game would still be in full uniform with his skates on, sitting in his stall waiting for you to talk to him. You know, you, yeah. <laughs> usually yeah. everybody tries to scatter after a game, or, you know, they, they begrudgingly some of them will come out and, and speak. But Sean was, uh, Sean was unique because he was a guy who was a hockey player but understood life and just loved to live his life. Yes. Yeah. He, uh, I really love Sean. He was just such a, a bright light in that locker room. And I know sometimes, he, you know, the players would get upset because he wouldn't shut up. But he was always delightful. I mean, that's a, that's a, a reporter's dream as a player who just won't stop talking. So, but he was entertaining and he was funny and he could be insightful. Right. And 
he was just a really good person. Right. There's there's no question. You know, again, I just want to bring up a couple of uh, players. You know, again, uh, Bob Probert on the ice, but almost like the the true definition of a gentle giant. I mean, he was, uh, yeah. uh, and, you know, obviously he had some personal problems, and we all, you know, that's been well documented. We know that. But really, he was just a genuinely good human being, too. Yes, I agree, Art. He was, um, I mean, as talkative as Sean was, Bob was quiet. And um, But, you know, you could just look at Bob, and he would just sit back, and all he wanted was permission to have a good time. And he would he would sit there and laugh at stupid jokes and and make jokes and try to tease people and um, yeah I mean it's so funny when you see the type of player he was on the ice he didn't have venom you know what I mean right I mean you see some tough players who skate out on the ice and and they just look ruthless I wasn't one of those he he it was part of his job and he did it. But I, I don't think that Venom was, you know, coursing through his body 24-7. I think he was just a, a genuinely nice person who had a skill for fighting. And um, I loved watching Bob fight. Well, yeah, watching him fight, and then, you know, in, in, in all honesty... Um, there was a time where the Bruise Brothers, along with obviously Joe Kosher, or back then Joey Kosher, uh, wow. you know, they, they they were the they were the Red Wings at one point. I, as, as terrible as that sounds, but those guys were uh, worth the price of admission because there were no shenanigans going on the ice with uh, with those two guys in the Red Wing lineup. Right. I mean, the, at that point, the Wings needed a draw. They needed a draw at the gate, and the Bruise Brothers were it, and they would patrol that ice, and whenever Joe would go, actually, Joey, <laughs> whenever Joey Kosher would come over the board and start skating towards someone, you knew that the gloves would be dropping soon, and, and he was sent out as, you know, the hitman. But, um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting time in the history of the Red Wings, and it'll never come again because of the rule changes. But... Um, it was, it was a great time to watch. Yeah, I always thought that the Bruce Brothers allowed that the young players to actually grow into being professional players because they didn't really have to worry that you know somebody was going to. And you're right; it was a different game back then. Uh, that that something was going to happen to them. You know, they they, they had their security in, in in the Bruce Brothers, and I think it allowed them to, to to really concentrate on on their game and not so much be looking over their shoulder. So it it was really kind yeah. of a service that they provided for them. Right, and you know, every team had their their enforcers or goons, but Detroit had the best. And, I mean, Edmonton had some really good ones, too, at the time, in the 80s. But, um, yeah, it was, Detroit was definitely leading the league in intimidation on the ice at that point. Well, you know, it, it was funny. Uh, Joey tells a story when he came back to the Red Wings, uh, when uh, Scotty brought him back, and, you know, when he was, you know, rediscovered in the beer league, and, uh, uh, you know, he thought he was going to fight. And, you know, Scotty, the first thing Scotty told him was, I don't want you to fight. I just want you out there 
and uh, <laughs> just as long as they know you're there, that'll that that's good enough, you know, because nothing will happen just right. because you're on the team, you know. And so, Co uh, uh, you know, Coaster thought, wow, that's that's pretty odd, but in a way, he respected that because you know, at that point in his career, even though Joey was more than willing to drop the gloves, I think that he also wanted to concentrate on being a hockey player, and uh, and and he did score some pretty big goals for uh, uh, right. for, for Detroit. I want to take you back, Sydney, to the. Uh, uh, March 26th game uh, in, in 1997, obviously Darren uh, McCarty in, in the Lemieux fight. And, uh, you know, I, I know you write about how everybody was, uh, and Wojo in his forward, Bob Winowski, about how we were all kind of anticipating something going on. The Red Wings had not defeated Colorado that year. The year before, they eliminated him in the Western Conference Final, and this was a team that still holds the NHL record for victories with a 62, I believe it is, second in all-time points, 131. Montreal had like 132 and one of Scotty's teams. But my point right. being is, as I remember the day before that game, Wojo and I were all over Iserman about, come on, you know something's going to happen. Right. Tell right. us and all that. And you, you know, and because we all knew that something was going on. And, and you know, and Stevie sort of towards the end when, you know, he kind of, kind of murmured a player's uh, jersey number at us that might get into a little scrum, but he didn't sure. confirm anything, and, you know, and after a while, but, 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 but uh, as I call him, Robert and I really tried to, uh, uh, to get something out of him. I would never have imagined what would occur that next night. I mean, that is incredible. It was beautiful. And, you know, the day before, the person I remember talking to was Don Cherry. And just to, to have a conversation with him about what was to come. And again, like like you say, the players couldn't say anything because then it would be premeditated. Right. Even though everybody knew, everyone knew, and Klopp and you wasn't in the lineup the first two times the teams met that season. So this was it. This was their opportunity, and it really played out like one of the best theatrical moments in the history of sports. Yeah, I I, I, I mean, to, to, to this day, I, I just, it, it was just incredible, and, you know, even Darren says this, Darren McCarty, he never should have been in that game, and he ends up scoring the game winner in overtime. He should have been kicked out, but he wasn't, yeah. and... You know, just the, uh, you know, Patrick Watt to this day says that that pirouette he did with Brendan Shanahan or whatever uh, messed up his shoulder and he was never the same goalie oh, really? after that. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there were a lot of things that went on that ice. But as corny as it sounds, I mean, certainly that was the galvanizing moment. That's when the Red Wings did become that championship caliber team. I mean, they had to. And, you know, Joe Koser again said something interesting to me. He wasn't in the lineup that night. And he was glad he wasn't because he thought, that those guys that took the ice that night for the wings had something that they had to do and they did it not only beat the avalanche but beat them in every way imaginable right and you know you brought up something about you know the, how it was a game that people will remember and any player who was on that ice even the ab players they will never forget that game and after a player plays in, you know, 12,000 games, how many of those games do they actually remember? Right. And I'm sure each and every one of them would remember this game. 
Yeah, there's no question. It was it was, it was definitely uh, uh, to get you know just j- just a wild moment. When we look back now, uh, Cindy, are there certain players that maybe stand out to you that fans you know might not have been you know these stars? I mean, we brought up a lot of almost legendary Red Wings at this point, but but guys that stood out to you for various reasons. Oh gosh, there were so many. Um... I'll throw a name out there, and this is kind of funny. Mike Peluso. Oh, really? You know, one of the nicest guys I met in the game of hockey. And just the type of player who I would go up to after a game, and at one point early on, we were chatting, and and he was asking me questions about myself. And I said, yeah, I play tennis. And from that point on, anytime I saw him, he would call me over and he'd say, hey, How's your tennis game going? Are you playing doubles? Are you playing singles? And I'm thinking, what a nice guy. And and that was it. Just you know, we would and then we would launch into the hockey stuff and just a very nice person. And and there were some coaches and oh there were so many players. They were just Craig Willannon. I mean, this guy gave me a ride home after a game in Quebec because I couldn't get a cab. And oh, I mean he gave me a ride back to the hotel and just Super nice and talking. Pat LaFontaine was another one. And it just, I don't know. With this conversation, conversation could go on for hours. Well, you know, it, 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 it's interesting that you would bring up those those guys because I uh, there were always certain opposition players that you know over the years and, and some when they started out younger would be sitting in the press box and the old configuration at the Joe where WDFN where I was working at the time uh, I would always be sitting right next and you know this Cindy right next to the only bathroom in the press box I was that's where that's where my oh, seat right. was and then it, it, in the beginning. The, the the scratch players for the opposition would be sitting next to me to my left, and I got to know Shane Doan really really well. He was it was still the Winnipeg Jets, and you know he was just a guy. And obviously, you know, he, he grew, you know, people knew he was just a decent, humble kid. And I think that that's the that that's another thing that uh, the, the, that you know that we get to see is that a lot of them are pretty appreciative of where they're at. Oh, they absolutely are, and even the superstars. You know, I remember Doug Gilmore was scratched one night because he had a back injury. And, and we just sat there and talked, and, and it wasn't just about hockey. And just very real. I, I think that's what I loved about hockey players, is that they were just so real and so relatable. And um, I feel very grateful that I was able to cover hockey. Not that other athletes aren't relatable, but um, there's a distance, it seems. You know, I, I covered a little bit of baseball, a little bit of uh, basketball, no football, but um, I don't know. I just think the hockey players are very home fun and just very um, down to earth. Well, I, I think that I, I think they are, and I, and I think part of it too is is that. Um you know, I guess, you know, as much as I hate to say this, you know, hockey is a little bit of a regional, or it, it's expanding, obviously, now. Uh, and if, if you're a hockey fan, you're, you're really into it, and you really have a passion. And sometimes when you talk to a player, and, you know, you, you might mention something that you saw in the game, and then once they figure it out that, you know, this person actually likes the sport that I play, <laughs> they kind of yeah, know it, yeah. you know, they kind of do let down their defenses a little bit. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true, and I think they're always willing to educate other people about, oh, no, no, you saw that, but that's not what really happened. And 
to not be dismissive, but to actually have a conversation. How, how do you like the game today? Uh, do you, you know, I mean, it, it's changed and, uh, yeah. you, you know, the, the NHL is famous for saying they're going to enforce something like the face-off rule, and, which right. they did a lot in the beginning, and now I don't think they've called a face-off violation or a penalty in, I can't remember the last one against the Red Wings, and they used to get a lot of those. I, I mean, right. I, are you happy with the sport? Do you like where the game is headed? You know, I, I, I objected when they started backing down on the fighting I, I really liked fighting as part of the game, but I understood that they needed to have a more national appeal to the sport and that the fighting might not be a turn-on for people who are new to the sport or watching the sport. Um, I think hockey will always retain its grit and its roots, so I, I'm not concerned about that. I like the game. It's faster, and that can't be bad ever. But... Um, yeah, there's there's more opportunities for more talented players, like uh, you know sheer numbers of talented players, and that that's good because it gives you know more of these kids who are playing hockey now more of an opportunity to go and actually make it somehow. But um, yeah, I think you know the truth of the sport will always win out, no matter what type of little rule changes they make, it, it'll still be a wonderful sport. Now, the thing that amazes me is how young the players seem to be, but then again, when I first started covering it, I was young too. I was, I, it was their age as well. Yeah, so yeah. I, maybe it didn't set they, in, but it just seems... Now, Art. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, but I mean, it seems to me that these, you know, I, I, you know, I, I look at these rosters and these... You know, they're anywhere from 18 to 21, and these kids are making an impact in the league. And I'm thinking, wow, I mean, I know you had, you know, your Eisermans and stuff, and there's always been players of that ilk, but there just seems to be so many of them. But I think you hit it on the head with expansion, and, you know, Seattle's going to be here, and then the rumor is after Seattle it'll be Ottawa and Houston, and there will be 34 teams in the National Hockey League, which means, as you said, there's going to be a lot of job openings, and, and obviously it'll be an opportunity for players of all ages, but especially for young guys to uh, to make their mark rather early in this league. Right, and hopefully enough resources is poured into the feeding system, you know, like colleges or junior hockey or, or wherever, even overseas, so that the level of play rises beneath the NHL so that we're not getting a diluted product because there are so many openings, job openings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hope not, but you know it's such an international game now, though. Too. I, I mean, you know, I, I can remember talking to to, to Nick Lindstrom. We haven't even mentioned him, uh, but uh, talk, I, know. <laughs> I mean, you know, perhaps the greatest defenseman of all time. <laughs> Sorry, there, Nick. Uh, but 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 my point being is that when he first came over, you know, he said that he never thought about the National Hockey League when he was growing up because he thought about making the Swedish national team representing his. country company or his country and winning uh you know uh uh, the gold medals in the world championships and then the in the olympics well you talk to today's swedish player even a guy like gus nyquist and they were all who actually went to the university of maine uh you know they grow up all over the world now thinking about playing in the nhl and that just wasn't the that just wasn't the norm back then so uh i i think hopefully and i guess this is my own hope that it won't be diluted with 34 teams because you know, there's you 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 go to all you know four corners of the globe, and it seems that they're you know hockey's being played somewhere, 
every single day. <laughs> right, right. So, yep, yeah, I hope you're right. Hey, gosh, I hope I am right too, Cindy. I, I don't I know if I'm trying to convince me or you on that one, but uh, um, right. uh, let, let's look uh, at uh, uh, going back and looking at your career and uh, uh, did you always know you wanted to be a sports writer? And did you ever think that because you were a woman that it was impossible? Or did you, th you know, you were geared no matter what? Because, you know, Cindy, I know you don't like to toot your own horn here and pat yourself on the back. But let's be honest, you were one of the first. You were, you're a bit of a trailblazer. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. And, and I know that that's true now that I look back on it. But honestly, it was more of a ignorance is bliss. I, I was determined I wanted to do this, and I didn't. I didn't even think about it. I didn't even think that I might have resistance. I didn't even think that they may not want me to do this job. I didn't even think that maybe there wouldn't be an opening. I just, I just went for it because it was what I truly felt I was supposed to do. So, um, and it wasn't the first career choice. Um, you know, initially, right out of high school, I went into economics and finance, which mm. I can't even believe I did that. I hate that. And um, I went for two years. I got an associate's in business and took a year off. And during that year, it came to me that, you know what, you just love sports and you like writing. I wanted to go into broadcasting, but, you know, as fate would have it, I, I got an interview at the Detroit News when I was at Wayne State University completing my journalism degree, and then the, the die was cast. So I ended up in the, the newspaper business, but I don't regret it one minute, and I'm grateful that I went into hockey, that's the, the sport I wanted to cover, because I, as we talked about, I think they were very accepting. I think it might have been a, a different story had I pursued being a beat writer of one of the other major sports because I, I know there were some obstacles for female reporters in baseball, basketball, football, but I didn't experience that in hockey, and, and I'm just so grateful for that. Now, I know you, you, you covered a beat at 23. You're fresh out of college. Uh, how did that happen? Did the news approach you? Was there just an opening? Uh, because there you... was, um, yeah, there was a part-time editorial assistant opening in the sports department at the Detroit News, and the my advisor in the journalism department at Wayne State called me in and said, you know, I think you should go on this job interview. But I don't want to work at a newspaper. <laughs> go to look for the, inter for the experience. So I did. And I landed the job, much to my dismay. And um, so I just stuck with it. And then I kept asking if I could just write stories. Because an editorial assistant at that point was combining the agate page and um, it's just all the scores and the standings. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't reporting at all. It was really just working on the computer in the sports department. So I kept asking for opportunities to write. And I was thrown bones here and there. And I did my best and started getting more clips and more opportunities. And everything just kind of snowballed. 
Yeah, well, it would, you know, it's uh, the name of the book is Power Play Forward by Bob Winowski, uh, Wojo, uh, My Life Inside the Red Wings Locker Room. Cindy, I know the book is doing very, very well, but uh, uh, how can people pick it up? And uh, as I said, with Valentine's Day coming, what better way to give the hockey fan uh, in your life uh, a, a little token of your appreciation and love on Valentine's Day than getting them a copy of this book? That's great marketing, Art. Yes. And the book is red, too. Yes, it is. It is. Right. Great. So, you know, if people are interested in getting a book, obviously it's available on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. But if they would like a signed copy, they can email me at CynthiaLambertAuthor at gmail.com, and I can get a book out to them. And I also, I know it's going to be after Valentine's Day, but I do have book signings coming up as well. So um, I will have those on my website, which is CynthiaLambert.net. And um, I guess that's, uh, that's a good way to get the book. Well, when's your next book signing? That, uh, I know people that uh, you know may not be able to, uh, uh, to pick it up in time for Valentine's Day, but it, it could be a gift, a birthday gift, any kind of gift, or just, hey, just, uh, okay. Yeah. Well, I have, I am going to be at the St. Clair Shores Aqua Fest on um, Saturday and Sunday, February 17th and 18th, um, usually around, I think it's between like 10 and noon or 11 and 1. And then um, I'm actually going to be signing books at the Flint Firebirds game on February 24th. Then I'm at uh, the Barnes & Noble in Northville on March 9th from 6 to 9 p.m., and the Barnes & Noble in Shelby Township on March 16th in the evening from 6 to 8. And then in Rochester Hills on March 25th from 1 to 3 p.m. Well, you know, Cindy, I mean, I, I wish you the best of luck, uh, obviously, in this book. I oh, have a sorry. couple. You know, people are going to ask me because I'm, I'm thinking what what people will come up to and go, yeah, I, I heard the, the Cynthia Lambert, uh, the Cindy Lambert podcast, but you didn't ask her this. Who was your favorite player to cover? Oh. I know it's a tough one. Gosh. Um, Sergei Fedorov. Yeah, he was, he was unique. Happening and he was just such a beautiful player, and he's really a, a great human being. So it was, and it was interesting, just his background and, and trying to navigate the language barrier at first and, and watching him play and, and just the sheer talent. I, I think he was, he was just very interesting, too. Right, and I think the Red Wings made a wise decision to let Sean Burr kind of break him into North America. Couldn't, have been, couldn't be a better guy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, best player you've ever, you, you've ever seen? Best player? Yes. I mean, it doesn't have to be a wing oh. or just, op- you know. I mean, I, I'll tell you mine, who I, who I really thought was just great. Uh, and was such a dominant player, but I'm just kind of curious. Is there one player that you know that just stood out to you that was just? You know, I, I really. How can you not say Wayne Gretzky? Right. I mean, just oh my god! And and I think what happens when people say no, Wayne wasn't that great. It's you forget no one had done that before at the time, and so many players have modeled their games after Gretzky, but they never had that intuition that that just raw ability that he had. And I just loved watching him skate and how he would swoop down and, and oh, yeah, I guess I'd have to say Wayne Gretzky. Yeah, you know, I mean, Gretzky's... Your- mine is Mario Lemieux. 
Um, yeah. I yeah. just thought that I, I I thought he was incredible. You know, obviously if he didn't get his illness, uh, who knows what numbers he would have would have put up. Uh, uh, right. Just an extraordinary talent, and for a man as big as he is, and I think people don't they don't realize. That. I mean, he's he's gigantic. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> that the way he was so graceful on the ice, I really really always admired his game. But then again, of course, you know I, you know Fedorov is right up there. Uh, you know, obviously right. Stevie, and, and you know we keep forgetting him, but Nick Lindstrom is, it was extraordinary. But it was so oh, Nick, effortlessly. I miss watching Nick Lindstrom play. Oh my God! Whenever I watch the game and those the puck goes back to the point, I get frustrated. <laughs> Because no one does the, with the puck what Nick Lindstrom can do with the puck. Well, yeah, you know, the, the funny thing is, is I trust me. I think the Red Wings really miss him too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. But, but I, I remember uh, I, I read a quote, and, and then I actually might have even saw this on television after his rookie season. Sidney Crosby was asked, "What did you know? What happened to the league? What did you learn that you didn't really quite know when you went in there?" And he goes, "Well, there was a lot of things, but the one thing that I really learned was how much that Nick uh, uh, Lidstrom uh, uh, controlled a hockey game." He said, I, you know, I would be, you know, breaking in on him and he'd be in front of me and I make a move to the net and I think I've got the puck on my stick and I'm about ready to shoot. And I look behind me and there's the Red Wings going up ice because he took it off my stick. I had no idea. Yeah. And bam, you know, the Red Wings are on the rush. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, a- Nick, and the thing that differentiated Nick is he would never comment about his own game. I mean, no. you never... You, I mean, Steve Eiserman was humble, but when you talk about immense talent, Nick Lindstrom would, ne- it, would it was like so hard to try and get him to compliment himself or to say, yeah, I did a really, really good job on that power play. I mean, it was like pulling teeth. Yeah, it really was. I mean, really, just a great player. Well, Cynthia, again, Cindy Lambert, our guest here on episode 50 of the Red and White Authority. The name of the book is Power Play, forward by Bob Winowski. Uh, Power Play, My Life Inside the Red Wings Locker Room by Cynthia Lambert. Cynthia, I, I, I don't why I always call you Cindy, but I, I yeah. keep seeing the books right in front of me. I get Cynthia, but uh, Cindy, thanks for joining us on the Red and White Authority. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for sharing uh, uh, not only some great stories, but uh, sharing your life with us here on the Red and White Authority. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome, Art. Thanks. It was great to chat and talk with you.